Genesis 44 is where we are today. Genesis 44 and beginning in verse 1. And we'll be moving into the the 45th chapter. Uh, We continue the story of Joseph and his brothers. And they are now back. um, Well, they were going to stay. Or they were going to go back. But now we get to see them stay a little bit longer. Genesis 44, verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up. Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan, How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it for me that I should choose, that I should do so. Only the man in whom, in, in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his father's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to us, or to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he did, uh, or if he should leave his, his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. 
and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother, brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And, that, and after that, his brothers talked with him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, take your word, we pray, and plant it deep in our hearts. Open our eyes to give us understanding. Help us to see wonderful things from your word. Lord, we look to you as the one who has spoken and asks Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yeah, it's a lengthy, another lengthy story, but, you know, there's a sense that it really needs to all go together. I didn't want to stop at the end of chapter 44. Uh, I think we would have lost a lot of that eruption of emotion as we came to chapter 45 where Joseph couldn't contain himself. You remember at the end of the previous chapter where we closed that story, there was a great feast among the brothers they had uh, all, they, they were unaware, the 11 brothers were unaware that it was Joseph who was throwing the feast for them. I mean, here, technically, the 12 sons of Jacob were all together, but 11 of them didn't even know it. 
And so they were, in a sense, relieved. They had come down. They had retrieved Simeon. They were able to go back, not just with Simeon and not just with more food, which was their purpose in coming down, but there was a sense that coming back with Benjamin alive and well was of the utmost importance. If you remember uh, the words of Jacob to his sons, and of course this is what Judah recounts as part of his argument to Joseph in this part of the story, uh, that you know Benjamin, if, if Benjamin doesn't come back, my father's going to die. The grief is going to be too much. And so as they went to sleep that night, knowing that they would all 11 go back, to Canaan, there had to be a great sense of relief. Uh, the favoritism that we saw in Jacob, it, you know, it's, it's a lesson that his, his parents practiced it. He's now practiced He still has not learned the lesson. If you think about it, Simeon was left, to, in a sense, rot in jail because he was unwilling to let Benjamin go down. And it was only after all the food was gone when they came back from the first trip that he finally relented and said, okay, you can take Benjamin. Because his brother said, if we come back without Benjamin, the guy says we can't see his face. In other words, he's not going to show us favor. He's not going to sell us grain. And so Jacob's favoritism towards Benjamin is is nearly going to cost the whole family. I mean, he says it's a matter of life or death if we don't get food. And Simeon, of course, suffered the brunt of this as he remained in jail in Egypt. And so the brothers then, now relieved of all of that stress, all of that's done, their bags are loaded up, they're ready to go back to Canaan, they've had this wonderful festive meal, they go to bed with the intention of getting up first thing in the morning and hitting the trail. But chapter 44 opens with the instructions of Joseph giving his steward, um, or giving instructions to his steward to put the, the grain in the bags, fill it as much as they can carry, put their money back in, That was the same plan as before. He'd done this once before, returned their money to them, very gracious thing. But then he makes this one adjustment, to place a silver cup, not just any silver cup, but Joseph's silver cup, into the bag of Benjamin. Now, we shouldn't miss the connection here of the fact that the cup was silver in knowing that what what had Joseph been sold for by his brothers into captivity but 20 pieces of silver. And really, this test is putting the same uh, object before them. Were they willing to let the cost of this cup, and in the sense the cost, it wasn't necessarily the worth of the silver itself, but was their freedom, their liberty, if they took the blame for the stealing of this cup, were they going to allow the cost of the cup, the cost of the silver, to tempt them to betray their brother Benjamin, let him take the fall for it? Walk away free men, which is what they could have done, just as they had done with Joseph when they took the silver for him. Benjamin's now set up to take the fall, and they don't even know it. Joseph is intent on testing his brothers. We've seen several tests already. This is the final test. I don't know that Joseph knew it was the final test. I don't know that Joseph, if you, if, as you read the story, the narrator doesn't tell us. We're not sure of this. But if you look at Joseph's emotive reaction to Judah's plea for his case, there is a sense that Joseph lost control. And I don't mean that in a bad sense. I mean in the sense that any of us would uh, as, as Judah made the case to plead with him. And yet Joseph is still testing his brothers. That's what he has been doing. And what we have witnessed through these tests is that God has been transforming their hearts. 
And we see part of that in this passage before us today. Verse 4 tells us that they had only gone a short distance before Joseph sends the steward out to overtake them, much like the posse being sent out to round up the bad guys. And Joseph's exact words to his steward to ask his brothers, verses 4 and 5, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. The question, why have you repaid evil for good, is a question of deep moral significance. It is a question that connects us to the later phrase that Joseph says to his brothers, one that we probably all know full well, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. We see the word evil repeated a number of times. It's, it's a question of, well, it's, there, there's a sense that there is a universal ethic. If you look throughout cultures and throughout time, there is a, an ethic that is received among most cultures throughout history that you should not repay someone's good deed to you with an evil deed. That's something that you can read history books and you can look that people consider that particularly heinous if you do such a thing. And that's what Joseph's saying to them. Here, I did this good thing to you and now you're repaying evil by stealing this cup from me. And he brings up this issue of divination. There's no evidence that Joseph practiced divination. Most scholars think, I'm convinced as well, that this was just a part of the tactic. He was using it to stir up fear in his brother's hearts. He had used his power of knowledge to start or plant the seed. You remember at the banquet that he set them in order of birth, and they looked at each other in amazement. How did this guy know our birth order? And so he's, he's kind of creating this idea in his brother's minds that they would be fearful of him, that he had special powers. So that's what's going on here with this whole div- divination thing. Um, it seems like what much is driving much of, of Joseph's intention here with the test, it, it, it almost looks like a gospel presentation. He wants his brothers to see their moral deficiency and also what God's law is, what it requires. The moral deficiency is, of course, their sin. The fact that they not only sold their brothers into slavery, but their motivation was envy. They were jealous of their brother. And this was a great sin in and of itself, but the fact that they carried that out, first with the intention to kill him, and then later to relent and sell him into slavery, this was their sin. But of course, God's law, he wants him to to see that as well. Uh, The law of God reveals his character, who he is. Jesus later summarized, distilled the law in this way, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of God. And the prophets, you see, Joseph's not giving them a theology lesson, but he is using theology to teach them a lesson for them to see that their sin is ultimately against God, not just against him, but that God can use even their evil deeds to accomplish his good purposes. That's exactly what comes out of not just the later part in 50, the verse that we often quote, what you intended for evil, God intends for good. But in this passage where he says over and over, God sent me before you. It's not you who sent me. You think you did it, but it was God who did it. God brought me to Egypt and he did it to preserve life, to save your life, to save the family's life, to save the lives of millions of people. And so he mentions then to them, to, to the steward about the, uh, the divination, the, 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 the idea that, uh, that Joseph had these special powers. If you think about it, it's one thing to steal a cup and that would have been a bad thing in and of itself for them to have taken something that wasn't theirs. 
but it's just this extra layer of fear that the person who owns this cup has special powers to bring in, you know, conjure up more concern on his brother's thought and uh, uh, in, in their thoughts. That's what they would have been thinking. And so the steward sets out shortly after the brothers and he confronts them with the words that his master has given him. And the brothers protest this accusation, and rightfully so because they're innocent. They didn't do it. Far be it from us, they say. And then they remind him, listen, we brought back the money that you put, you know, or whoever put back in our sacks. They think it was probably him because he's the one who said when they came and said the money was there, we brought it back, and he said, you're okay, peace to you. They assume that he's the one who did it. And so they remind him of this. Why would we bring back silver? That, that you return to us to, to be above reproach, but then we brought more to pay for this round of grain to only then to then only steal a cup from you to take to take a, a cup of silver. It doesn't make any sense. Verse eight: How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? And then they bring down condemnation on the one who is found to be guilty, and they say that whoever is guilty of stealing the cup, he should die, and we will all be your servants. So there's, I think there's probably some conversation that's not recorded that, that took place. That they, um, but because if you look at this, they are so confident they are innocent. They, that there almost had to be some kind of conversation where they went around and like, did, did you take it? I didn't take Did you take, you know, no, none of us took it. We don't have it. We're good. You know, if you find it, whoever, whoever has it can die. We'll all be your servants. We don't have the cup. That's how confident they were, they were, they were sure. And so the steward agrees with them, but then he modifies the plan. He says, no, you're not gonna, you know, the person's not gonna die, but whoever's found with the cup is gonna be the servant of my Lord, and the rest of you guys are gonna be free to go. Because he, of course, knows exactly where the cup is. He's the one who set this whole thing up. But for dramatic effect, he starts with the oldest, and works his way down. He knows where the cup is. He could have walked right up to Benjamin's cup, opened the sack, and pulled it out. But he starts with the oldest, Reuben. He, he begins working his way down. No cup, no cup, no cup. You can sense that the brothers, as he gets down to the, 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 the younger, you know, that they're, okay, whew, you know, it's not here. We're relieved, we're relieved. And then he gets to Benjamin's sack, and there's the cup. And how do the brothers react? They tore their clothes, verse 13 tells us, and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. No more protesting. Nothing left to say. They are simply grieved. They respond the same way their father responded to the news that Joseph was missing and presumed dead. They had gone from elation and relief as they set out on their journey to now utter devastation and there was nothing to say. Tails between their legs, they quietly returned to the city. You sense that, that they... They just put their stuff back on their donkeys. They just turned around. There's no command. There's no instruction. They know what to do. We're going back. And as they get back to Joseph's house, it's still early in the day. Joseph is still there. He hasn't gone out to do his business. And it says that they fell before him. And we remember the dream of Joseph, dreaming that his brothers would bow before him. And we've seen that happen. This is the third time they bow before him. The dream is not completely fulfilled yet. That's going to come later when not only all the brothers, but also his father and his wives bow before him. But you notice a progression in the bowing. The first time they bowed, it simply says they bowed before him. The second time in the, in the, in the next journey, it says they prostrated themselves before him. 
they were full of gratefulness to him for what he had done and, and showing mercy to them. This time, however, it says they fell on their faces before him. It's a clear sign of desperation. And as they're laying on their faces, in a sense groveling before Joseph, he launches in on them in just accusations. What have you done? Why have you done this? I showed you good and you return evil against this. And he brings up the claim of divination again. He mentions that one more time. Stirring up in their hearts this thought that, that he could do, it was more than just his position of power, but he could do scary things to them. And Judah, who is the rising leader among his brothers, in verse 16, stands up and says, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. In essence, Judah says to, to Joseph, what, what's left to say? I mean, what can we say? You know, the, technically, the, the evidence is circumstantial, but it's still very condemning. It was, it was found there in the sack. It's hard to argue our case against this. But what's interesting is Judah mentions their guilt. What's he talking about? He knew they were innocent. He was confident of this. He knew that Benjamin hadn't taken... You can imagine the conversation that as they went back to the city on their donkeys, they're looking at Benjamin going, dude, why didn't you... What, what did you do? And Ben's like, I didn't take it. I didn't do it. Whoever put the silver must have put it... You, 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 he knows they're innocent. But he admits their guilt. What's he talking about? Well, they were innocent of stealing the cup, and that's not what he's admitting to here. Everyone in the room knew they were, that they were innocent. Everyone knew that Benjamin was innocent. The guilt that Judah is referring to here, a guilt that he says is before God, is the guilt of their sin against their brother Joseph. And here he is confessing that, not knowing that he is confessing before the one who he sinned against. We saw last week that God had given them the grace of remorse and the grace of a godly fear. And in this context now, we see him give them the grace of true confession. Able to admit what they had done was wrong. In that moment, Judah's thinking, our sins have found us out. You know, our past has caught up with us. He doesn't realize everything that's happened. He's still in the dark. And more importantly, he doesn't know what is about to happen. And so Joseph dismisses them all. Go back to your father. Go back to Canaan. Only Benjamin will stay. He's the one who is guilty of the, the, the crime of theft. He'll remain as my servant. You guys can leave. And it would have been very tempting for the brothers to turn and walk away. And they had done it once before, walked away from Joseph. In that case, it was just envy in their hearts. Now their lives were on the line. In a sense, there was more motivation for them to betray their brother. But instead, we see men who have been transformed by the grace of God. And we see that especially in how Judah approaches Joseph in verse 18. He asks, may I speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. And then he makes the case before him. In the first part of the case, he appeals uh, to, to the, the fact that jo they were just doing what Joseph had said. And then in the second part, he appeals based on his father's life. He appeals to Joseph's emotions. The first part of the argument, he reminds Joseph that 
Joseph is the one that asked the questions. Do you have a father? Do you have a brother? And they answered yes. And then he instructed them to go and get the brother, right? They were just doing what he had said. In a sense, Joseph is appealing to, or, or Jake, Judah is appealing to Joseph's mind. Just logically, this is, hey, we did what you, you said to us. We followed your orders. We even protested against it. We said it was a bad idea, but you insisted and said, you know, you weren't going to let Simeon out of jail. You weren't going to sell us more grain if we didn't come back with Benjamin. In a sense, this is, this is kind of on you. But then in the second half, Judah appeals to Joseph's heart. He pulls on the emotional strings, and he's pulling on the emotional strings of the man not realizing that he's actually pulling on the emotional strings of the father. <laughs> it's Joseph's father, too. He says that, you know, Benjamin was the, the, the son of his old age. He loves him very much. If we come back with him, uh, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. And then Judah does something very courageous. He offers to stand in his place. He offers to be the substitute. It's the first image of such a thing in Scripture where we see a person step in and offer to take the, 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 the fall, so to speak, for someone else. Of course, this brings to mind the substitute, the substitute, the descendant of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus who would stand in as our substitute and pay for what we could not pay. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. At the end of Judah's appeal to Joseph, the last thing he says, I fear to see the evil that would find my father in verse 34. He brings up the word evil. It's the same word that Joseph has used, and now he is expressing that it's evil that his father will experience if Benjamin does not come back. He has no idea when he closes his case, when he gives his last argument, what is going to happen next. He's looking for mercy. And Joseph erupts. He literally loses it. Make everyone go out from me. Now, however long that took, whatever stress the guys had been under at this point, the screws were now really cranked down. Can you imagine the distress they're feeling as the servants are scattering, trying to get out of the room at Joseph's orders, and the brothers are standing there waiting, what's going to happen next? They have no idea. The guy's screaming for everyone to get out. And then he begins weeping, and he's weeping so loud that they can even hear him outside. The servants of Pharaoh even hear him. Everyone is in shock. What is going on? And when everyone clears the room, he blurts out, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? And the brothers are looking at each other thinking, Joseph who? Who is your father? What? What are you talking about? They can't speak. They're dumbfounded. Verse 3 says they were dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph calls them, come near. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. That's what this has all been about. Again, he emphasizes it in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. 
And then a third time in verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then again after that, He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Behind every frowning providence in Joseph's life was the smiling face of his gracious God, working all things together for good. Turning evil into good to preserve life. Do you know evil things that have happened? Have you experienced evil in your own life? Could God use that? Evil for good? To preserve life? Judah volunteered to take his brother's place. That's a noble thing. He loved his father. He felt remorse for his sins against Joseph. But that's not what we need to look at. We don't simply need a moral example. You see, after all, we're not Joseph in the story. We're the brothers. We're not innocent. We have the stains of guilt upon our hands. We've lied, we've stolen, we've betrayed others, we have envied and lusted, we have been angry and gossiped, we have misused our power by misusing people, we have worshipped our own idols of convenience and pleasure and comfort. We are all sinful and guilty and we desperately need someone to stand in our place. And just as God sent Joseph to Egypt to save and preserve life, even so he has sent his son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were His sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God sent the Son to redeem us from the curse of the law, something that we could not get out from under sin and death. But then making us His children, He doesn't just send the Son, He sends a Spirit. A Spirit into our hearts that we might call out, Abba, Father. You see, God is a sending God. A God who sends to save And a God who sends to adopt and make us His own. Heirs of all the promises and the riches that He lavishes upon us in Christ. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. One of the things that John Owen writes that really strikes me, he writes this to believers saying, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him, is not to believe that He loves you. In this table that's before us today, we have the reminder and we have the presence of the work of Christ. The table reminds us of what Christ has done through His death, the breaking of His body, the shedding of His blood to atone for our sins. He was the substitute. He stood in our place. But the table also nourishes our hearts with the work of Christ in this moment that through their drinking of the wine, through the eating of the bread, we proclaim His substitutionary death for us. That our sins are forgiven. And don't we need that reminder? That, that, that what we read from 1 John 1, 9 this morning, don't we need that reminder? 
that God has indeed forgiven us all of our sins, all unrighteousness. And so we come to the table. We're commanded to do this until He returns. And at that moment when He does, like Joseph and his brothers who fell on one another and kissed each other and wept with joy and relief, so will be our reunion with our Savior at His return. All will be right. All will be well. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you... Would you take your word as we prayed before and, and make it effective in our lives? Cause us to see our need for a Savior. Cause us to see the greatness of your mercy toward us in Christ. Cause us to see the amazing power that you hold, all power, in your rule and reign as the sovereign one who is omnipotent over all things that you are able to even take that which is intended for evil and work it for good. Lord, there are cases where we cannot even imagine that that is possible. Would you give us eyes to see that you are that big and that good? Lord, help us now to forgive others as we have been forgiven. Help us to show mercy as we have shown mercy. Fill our cups now to overflowing with your love that you've displayed to us in Christ that it might overflow toward others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.